as we pick up this morning's passage, uh, Jesus has officially arrived in the city of Jerusalem, the focal point of where this story of redemption's been headed. And it's right around the time of the annual Passover feast so that people are pouring into the city in droves, upwards of six times the normal population, as many as 200,000 people, and with that, as many as 100,000 sheep for temple sacrifices. A several days long rehearsing and celebrating the story of the Exodus, God's rescuing of his people from Egyptian enslavement in the days of Moses. It's, it's that great story of redemption with, with all of its rich imagery in which Jesus now finds himself immersed in the midst of the transpiring events leading to his impending cross and empty tomb. Jesus himself, days away from establishing a greater Exodus by his blood, not from Egypt, but the, the far greater shackles of sin and death. Upon entry into the city, we, we saw Jesus drive out the, the money changers and sellers out of the temple, only then to make the very temple of God his own pulpit, leading to a series of debates between Jesus and the religious leaders, which is nothing new for us in Luke's gospel account. Those various debates making up the vast majority as of late of the entirety of chapter 20. We'll see more of that this morning a string of conversations that, that are not as disjointed as they may appear upon first glance, which I'll try to help us see toward the end of this morning's passage. Last week, I was, I was a little uh, frustrated, wished I could have gone back and chopped up chapter 20 into more sermons. Now, coming toward the end of chapter 20, I actually wish I would have preached the entire chapter as a single sermon. And you'll see what I mean by that uh, in just a few minutes. But um, let me just say, if, if you love the gospel, you, you're going to love seeing the way in which all of the pieces of the puzzle of Luke chapter 20 fit together. That said, picking up in verse 27, Luke tells us, now there came to him, to Jesus, some, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Right, the Sadducees, they were the ruling class of cold-hearted, wealthy aristocrats who enjoyed some of the most privileged positions in society. Not only was it the Sadducees who had controlling power of the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court for religious matters, but it was the Sadducees who received most of the proceeds from the money changers who made their fortunes in the temple courts. You can see where the friction's coming from. On more than one level, uh, the Sadducees couldn't be more different from the Pharisees. At times, the two groups even coming to blows with one another. You can read about that in Acts chapter 23. Politically speaking, the Sadducees had a, a reputation for cooperating with the Romans in an effort to maintain their political power, while the Pharisees longed for the overthrow of Roman tyranny, the gaining of, of Israel's political independence. Theologically speaking, the Sadducees adopted a more literal interpretation of the law of Moses, accepting only that which was written in Scripture, while the Pharisees followed the traditions of their forefathers, as we've seen, a code of morals and regulations that went far beyond what was recorded in Scripture. And yet, it was the Sadducees who were the first century liberals, in that they didn't believe in supernatural things like angels or the resurrection of the dead, Rejecting, too, the, the providence of God, believing that man is the captain of his own ship, so to speak. Their theology lining up pretty well with their lifestyle and that they, they lived materialistically for the here and now, not giving much thought to the afterlife. Sadly, like many people in our very own day and age. 
threatened by this Jesus of Nazareth having come into the city, disrupting their profiteering and the driving out of the money changers from the temple courts. And so they come to Jesus in this moment in an attempt to discredit him in the public square. Verse 28, we're told that they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Here the, the Sadducees present Jesus with a, a hypothetical situation, one that very few people would ever actually experience in life, all in an effort to put a theological point or two on the scoreboard in both discrediting Jesus and disproving the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. That according to the law of Moses, when a man died leaving his wife childless, it was the responsibility of that man's brother to to take the widowed woman as his wife that she might not only be cared for, but too that she might have an opportunity to to bear children as a way of preventing a man's name, family, family, and legacy from dying out. You see that in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. Where it says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. The Sadducees Uh, well-versed, or so they think, in the law of Moses, asked Jesus what would happen in the case of a woman who experienced that kind of tragedy seven times over, marrying one brother after another because one after another died without leaving her children. To whom would, would such a woman be married in the age to come? Would she have seven husbands in the resurrection? How does that work? It's a, it's a reductio ad absurdum. It's an argument that takes something to its logical conclusion in an effort to prove the nonsensical nature of the premise itself. And in this case, it's also really bad biblical interpretation. As the Sadducees use the scriptures to come to an unscriptural conclusion. We're told in Matthew's account of this story that Jesus rebuked them by saying, Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's an indictment, right? Again, the Sadducees, they had adopted a more literal interpretation of the law of Moses, accepting only that which was written in Scripture. They were well-versed on the Old Testament. And Jesus says in Matthew's account of this story, you don't know the Bible, nor do you know the power of God. Just because we own a Bible doesn't mean we, we know its contents, doesn't mean that we know the power therein. The question that the Sadducees present to Jesus is one for which they think that a decisive answer is impossible. And with that impossibility of a decisive answer, the impossibility of the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus said to them, verse 34, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age 
to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Right? In, in his response, Jesus reveals the, the problem with the Sadducees' question, namely their treating of this age and the age to come as one and the same. No space for discontinuity. Here declaring, Jesus does, that, that the present institution of marriage will not continue in the age to come, that it's, it's not a permanent institution in the economy of God. The Apostle Paul declares that the profound mystery of marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, that it's not an end in and of itself, but rather refers to Christ and the church. It's a shadow that points to a more glorious covenant reality between Jesus and his bride. Now, for Christians who are happily married, this may come as something of a disappointment, sparking the question as to whether the, the age to come will be less glorious than this age. The Bible it surely leaves us with a lot of unanswered questions regarding the afterlife. There are a number of things that God doesn't intend for us to know now, at least. In the words of one scholar, where God has ceased his divine revelation, we must cease from inquiry. That there's a God-ordained element of mystery regarding the age to come. And yet, what's not left to speculation regarding the age to come it's that it will be more glorious than anything we could possibly imagine. So that there will only be shouts of gain in the new heaven and earth. Which is why we have verses like 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, John says, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We shall be like Jesus, the bright morning star. Shining like the stars in the heavens, we will behold him in his fullness, in his glory, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature, the author of Hebrews tells us about Jesus. Or as the Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18, for this light momentary affliction, this life as we know it in this fallen, broken world, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Right, many of you know this. We looked at this when we worked our way through uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The apostle Paul, he experienced a great many sufferings, imprisonments, countless beatings, a stoning Three shipwrecks, adrift at sea, traveling dangers, hunger and thirst, exposure to the elements, and anxiety for the churches. Paul's afflictions, not to diminish any of ours in the least, make many of our experiences of suffering seem small by comparison. And yet, he could declare his affliction to be light and momentary. How is that possible? I think the answer is found in the contrasting glory. The weight of glory, as Paul says, beyond all comparison. The future glories of the age to come. A world in which sadness and suffering shall be no more. No more thorns and thistles. No more financial hardship. No more sin or being sinned against. No more putting our hope in things that disappoint. 
No more sickness, no more pain, no more hunger, no more hate, no more sadness, no more funerals, no more running from God, no more hiding from God. In the end, we who are in Christ will dwell with God and enjoy the eternal weight of his glory forever. C.S. Lewis, in his appropriately named The Weight of Glory, says it this way. He says, The faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds. He's talking about creation there. They're what we now call, he says, physical pleasures. And even thus filtered, they are too much for our present management. Children, just a little while from now, will struggle to eat cupcakes in moderation because we don't know how to do it well in this age. We've been surrounded with rapturous pleasures and we don't know how to handle them. Lewis goes on to ask, what would it be to taste at the fountainhead that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? And yet that, he says, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. That nothing in that long tomorrow will disappoint. No matter what questions we may bring to the table, there will be no letdowns in the age to come. Coming back to this morning's passage that we will surely know those followers of Jesus whom we hold dear and we will know an even deeper love for them and by them than we know in this age. As we will love them, we'll be loved by them with a pure, sinless, perfect love. In a world without death, Jesus says, verse 36, a world in which God's redeemed will be equal to angels. Not meaning that we will become angels someday, but rather that we will be like the angels in their immortality. Sons of God and sons of the resurrection, verse 36, the completion of our adoption at the final resurrection. Jesus declared these words in a day in which only sons could inherit their father's estate. So that by calling God's daughters sons of God, Jesus is declaring both men and women joint heirs of the blessings of salvation. He goes on in verse 37, but that the dead are raised, Jesus says to the Sadducees, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Again, the the Sadducees adopted a more literal interpretation of the, the law of Moses, which makes it all the more fascinating what Jesus does here. He could have He could have easily presented them with a pretty straightforward passage on the resurrection of the dead as there are several of those found throughout the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 being one example, a passage that declares that many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And yet what does Jesus do? He goes straight to the law of Moses itself in showing the Sadducees that the doctrine of the resurrection, it's been right in front of them all this time. Sadducees had appealed to Moses in presenting their original question, so Jesus appeals to the very same Moses in his response. Namely, Moses' encounter with God through the burning bush. There the Lord had said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, 
the God of Jacob. Three biblical patriarchs who, when Moses had that encounter with God through the burning bush, had been dead for centuries. And the Lord says not, I was their God, but I am their God. Still their God, because on the other side of death, they live alive in God's presence, awaiting their own final resurrection. Should come as no surprise to us. We've seen it before in Luke's gospel account, verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Right? Class is over. Scribes themselves, they, they believed in an afterlife. Uh, here, happy the scribes are with Jesus' response to the Sadducees. Jesus, once again, shutting the mouths of lions, the silence of even his skeptics bringing glory to God. And yet notice that Jesus isn't content to leave it there as he goes on to present the scribes with a question of his own, a riddle. Verse 41, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, and here he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? At this point, when Jesus comes onto the, the scene, that the Christ would be David's son was common knowledge. The scripture is prophesying that the Messiah would come from David's lineage. Luke has stated it numerous times over now. You don't even have to leave the first chapter to see it. Luke chapter 1 verse 30 where the angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him, here it is, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Matthew, in his gospel account, he doesn't beat around the bush at all. You can't even get out of the first verse before Matthew tells us the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. There it is, the son of Abraham. Doesn't get any clearer than that. Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David, going back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, a king in David's lineage through whom God would establish his eternal throne. Coming back to this morning's passage, Jesus presents the scribes with a, with a question, one provoked by the language of Psalm 110, a Davidic psalm that, that speaks of the coming of the Messiah, the great King David in that very psalm declaring someone in his lineage to be his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, there are two Lords there as David speaks these words, the first Lord being Yahweh in the Hebrew said to David's Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who, who is this who would one day be seated at the, the right hand of God? This son of David whom David would refer to as his Lord? I mean, for the, the great King David to, to call someone in his lineage his Lord implies something. Namely, that we're not just talking about some really great human king. We're talking about deity here. Jesus presenting of this question, not simply a theological exercise as he knows that, that the religious leaders have just witnessed his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. 
This is a declaration on Jesus' part that he's more than the son of David, which alone as a title, son of David, could come with the wrong expectations of a political Messiah, one who would overthrow Roman tyranny and establish uh, Israel's political independence. More than the son of David, Jesus is the son of God. The one who would die a criminal's death outside the city gates and yet would be exalted on the other side of death to the right hand of the Father. Psalm 110, you see it over and over again in the New Testament. Why? Because it would become the basis of the apostles' teaching on the post-resurrection exaltation of Jesus to the Father's right hand. As Jesus himself would go on to declare in the book of Revelation, very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the, the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I'm the descendant of David, the messianic king in David's lineage. And I'm the root of David, the source of David's royalty as one who existed long before David ever did. The question for all of us this morning, whether it's the question that you respond to for the first time or the hundred thousandth time, is who do you say that he is? I mentioned earlier that the various passages that make up Luke chapter 20, they're, they're not as disjointed as they may appear at, at first glance. One scholar describing the, the many debates that make up this chapter of the Bible as something of a stained glass window. A sequence of, of pictures that together tell a story. In this case, the story of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Perfect sequence. Think about it. Go back to the beginning of, of chapter 20. What did we begin with? We began with this question uh, of, uh, regarding Jesus' authority in the wake of his messianic entry into the city of Jerusalem, to which Jesus responded with a question about John the Baptist, the one by whom Jesus had received his, his own baptism. And then in chapter 20 came the parable of the wicked tenant farmers, which Jesus used to declare himself the, the vineyard owner's son in that case, the last in a long line of prophets, greater than the prophets, soon to be rejected and killed. And then came the question of paying taxes to Caesar, which the religious leaders leveraged in an attempt to have Jesus handed over to the Romans for execution, followed by none other than the question this morning about resurrection. And with that, the question of how David's son could also be David's Lord. Put all of these stained glass windows together and you have the story of the gospel. Jesus, stepping out of the baptismal waters of John's ministry as God's anointed priest and coronated king, the Messiah, having come, coming to Israel and ultimately to Jerusalem as the, the vineyard owner's final appeal, soon to be rejected and killed, handed over to the Romans for execution, cast outside the city walls and crucified, only then to rise from the grave, not only proving the doctrine of the resurrection by way of his own empty tomb, but de demonstrating that he, David's son, is to David's Lord. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in perfect stained glass sequence in chapter 20 of Luke's gospel account. Perhaps today is the day of salvation. 
the day to repent of your sins and to trust in this son of David and son of God for the forgiveness that can only be found in him. Believing him to be that both and. It's the confession of the apostle Paul in his letter to the saints in Rome where he opens with these words. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who is, here it is, descended from David according to the flesh, the son of David, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by what? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the response of this morning's passage, this morning's sermon. It's it's an echoing of the Apostle Paul's very words. Are they your words? Are they your confession? If we reject him as such, then we will find ourselves among his enemies, someday to be made his footstool, as Jesus says as much in referencing Psalm 110. But if we receive him as such, then not only is he David's Lord, but he's our Lord. The resurrected high king of heaven who will raise us with him someday to everlasting life. Again, I just want to come back to that that C.S. Lewis quote one more time in light of these glorious truths. And just read that once again for us. And let that set the stage along with our time in the scriptures this morning For us to worship heaven's king. Again, Lewis says, The faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds are what we now call physical pleasures. And even thus filtered, they are too much for our present management. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? And yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. Do you see the lesser life that the Sadducees had committed themselves to? This life of materialism, this life of living for the here and now, little to no thought of the afterlife, content to to drink from the rapturous physical pleasures of the here and now, not knowing how to presently manage any of it, failing to consider the greater weight of glory to come. It's no way to live. It's to function as an enemy of our own joy. And I'm preaching that to myself as much as anybody else. As I mentioned at some point over these past couple weeks, whoever said that to be too heavenly minded is to be of no earthly good, I don't know why they said that. We need to think like Lewis. We need to think like Jesus. There's something about thinking about the age to come that actually sets the stage for how we wake up today and live our very lives. And again, as Lewis says what he says about drinking joy from the fountain of joy, the greatest of our joys is Christ himself, who will forever be ours and and we his, sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Jesus, David's son and David's Lord.